very special good morning or midday or evening whenever you're catching up to us to watch this uh, greetings to our folks who watch around the country and around the world and we always wish to give a very special hello and we love you to those who are watching literally around the world thank you for joining us and we we pray for you and for your receiving our exposition of of God's Word Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, thank you for this magnificent, beautiful day which points to the world to come. The beauty and magnificence of the rule and reign of the return to Messiah and his perfect kingdom which knows no end. Thank you for choosing us, calling us out of the world as part of your divine plan. We pray for everyone who is watching and listening. Open their minds their hearts and their souls by the truth of your word, by your spirit to receive your word and to appropriate it, to bow the knee to our Lord Jesus, the Savior and Lord, and receive real, true, and everlasting life. And we pray that this gospel will be heard and appreciated all over again by many, many believers to strengthen their faith and to build their relationship with you and to strengthen them and prepare them for the dark times that we are experiencing around us. We pray for everyone on our prayer request list. We pray that you will have mercy on them and reveal them in a very unique and special way as you do with each and every person. Help them to respond to you wisely and well. And we do pray for their situations and circumstances, that you will raise them up, that you will heal them, and that you will help them. But most of all, heal and help the soul. We pray for some folks who are traveling this weekend and they're family situation as well. We pray for those of our number who are ill. Heal them all. Raise them up. Help them to feel better and get back to the duties of everyday life. And we pray for our country and for our world in this dark and dangerous time of history that we are experiencing. Help us to be the bright and shining light in this world of he who is the world made flesh and to defend his truth no matter what the cost to the death and beyond. Help us to participate by your mercy and your grace in the triumph of the kingdom of the Messiah, in spite of the evil one and those who are his. Bless the proclamation of your word, O sovereign God, this morning. So may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the word made flesh, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, for... To honor the reading of the word of the Lord and our journey through the magnificent gospel of John. Our passage this morning is John chapter 1 verses 19 to 28. John chapter 1 verses 19 to 28. The first uh, passage of text that we'll explore after completing the prologue. The testimony of John the baptizer. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me. The thong or the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in the Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So if you recall back in the prologue, back in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 1, again, the prologue is the first time that the Apostle John actually makes mention of John the baptizer. And there the Apostle John has stated the purpose, the mission statement, the mission purpose, the ministry of John the baptizer. He is, for the Word made flesh, for the Messiah, he is the Messiah's personal herald, his announcer. The man prophesied centuries before along with the Messiah that he would come ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way of the Jewish people, to prepare the way of the old covenant nation of Israel to receive the Messiah in their hearts and physically welcome him in as God's ultimate revelation to humanity and as the great prophesied son of David. So, <clears throat> John the baptizer, what else is his mission? It's not to draw attention or focus to himself. He is adamant about that. He is to draw everyone's attention and focus to God's true light, who, according to the Apostle John in the prologue, God's true light, the ultimate revelation of God to humanity, who is coming into the world. John was the point to the word made flesh as everyone's proper object of faith. Now, let me say that again. He is pointing to the word made flesh, the Messiah coming into the world, the Messiah himself. He personally is to be the very object of everyone's faith. So after the prologue, the Apostle John gives us this account of John the Baptist's testimonial, his witness before the Jewish people at large, the Jewish public, his witness before some men, some Galileans who will become Jesus' disciples. And of course, he is confronted here with this rather interesting, let's call them something of a delegation, something of an investigating committee sent out from the religious and quasi-political establishment, to use a phrase that we use today. A committee sent from the Sanhedrin, which is the chief Jewish ruling body, a body of men composed of Sadducees and Pharisees, priests, about 70, 71 members. It was basically the J Jewish Supreme Court. They are something of a legal body, something of a quasi-political body. However, they are firmly under the heel of the Roman Imperium, of course, of, of the Roman Empire, the Roman governor, the Roman occupiers. And considering the very lofty descriptions of the Messiah that the John the Baptizer gives, given the extremely exalted titles that John the Baptizer gives to the Messiah in these passages, he who is the Word made flesh, this tells us precisely why the Apostle John puts him in his gospel. Why after the prologue, he begins with John. He begins with John's ministry, which the beginning of Jesus' ministry flows from John's ministry. They both dovetail together. They are part and parcel of one another to a degree. But it's because of the things that John says, his witness, his testimony, these exalted titles, these exalted names that he gives us to the true identity of the Messiah. This is why, of course, John the Apostle includes him in his gospel. Let me remind you of the mission statement, which I will remind you of. I'll quote many times as we work our way 
through the Gospel of John. And oddly enough, as I mentioned weeks before, John gives his mission statement, his basic evangelistic purpose for the whole Gospel, all the way near the end of the Gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These things, including what we're studying today, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that by believing you may have life, eternal life in his name. Now in John's Gospel, again, the point of recording the sayings and ministry of John the Baptizer, it's not necessarily this man's extraordinary personality and other parts of his mission per se. Let me explain that for you. Uh, there is much that some of the other Gospels make of John the Baptizer, and they should. Some of them give you great detail about his rather, even by the standards of the culture of his day, his rather bizarre aesthetic appearance, his rather harsh Spartan aesthetic lifestyle, his fiery preaching of repentance, as important as that is, and his fiery preaching condemning the corrupt establishment of his day. Uh, the Apostle John doesn't even necessarily focus on John's baptizing the masses, as important as that was, to turn them back to God and to prepare them for the reception of God's Messiah. John doesn't even necessarily focus on the tremendous public stir and excitement, the notoriety that this man generated. That's not what the Apostle John emphasizes. If you look at this text carefully, it's interesting. He seems to take for granted that you, the reader, you, the hearer, have already read the other Gospels and you know all of this information already. Perhaps you do, because we assume, and I believe probably rightfully so, that the last Gospel to be written was John's Gospel. So he's assuming that you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That you've already heard that taught and proclaimed. Perhaps, hopefully, God willing. But the Apostle John specifically emphasizes what John says about Jesus, that's what's important. He emphasizes the baptizer's testimony, the baptizer's witness, in reference to Christ, telling you who he truly is, and what he has really come to do, and what he will accomplish. All of this regarding the Messiah, the Word made flesh, the one who is from the beginning, who is with God and is God, according to the prologue. And what John says about Jesus is of paramount importance here. That's what the Apostle John thinks is of paramount importance here. And so the Apostle John points out that the testimony, the witness of John the Baptizer concerning Jesus rests on divine revelation. And we will get to that in verses 31 and 34 when we reach those verses. The important thing about this man's witness and testimony is that it comes from God. It is divine inspiration. It is given to him by the Holy Spirit, and thereby it is his duty to give this information to the masses. John didn't come up with this stuff by himself. He's given this information by God himself. That's why we need to listen and pay attention to this man. Now, without being too tedious, I want to give you a little bit of historical background information on what's going on here and where this takes place and when this takes place. Because this is very, very important. You folks need to know this. Because you're going to hear all of the accusations. This is myth. This is legend. This is not factual, actual history. This is myth. This is legend. Or this is religious allegory. It is none of the above. What you are studying here is real space, real time, real geography, actual, factual, eyewitness, faithfully recorded history. 
It's not only theology, it's not only doctrine, it's not only spirituality. As magnificent and wonderful as those things are, we are teaching history today. Actual events of the most important lives ever lived and the most important events that have ever occurred. Up on the screen, Bernie was gracious to put up there for you a remote area of the Jordan River. And in just such a place, John would be baptizing. Uh, next week, I would like to put on the screen for you a picture of one of the locations that historians and scholars really do believe that John probably was there. Or this is one of the locations where he was probably baptizing people. We don't know many of these exact locations, but as I'm going to tell you here in a few minutes, we can get very, very close. If you want to visit Israel, you can get very, very close to the locations where these events that we're reading about took, took place. Um, the thing you have to understand is don't think that John the baptizer was just baptizing people in one location. That's not the case. He probably uh, went to certain locations on the edges of the wilderness, on the edges of settled areas of civilization, as we would say, that nevertheless, where large numbers of people could, could get to him and where, there's a, where there was a sufficient abundance of water where he could baptize hundreds, if not probably thousands of people. Now, again, this is accurate factual history. And all the way through studying this book, that is precisely how we're going to teach it and how we're going to proclaim it. And I hopefully will do my duty in reminding you of that. From some very diligent work from some absolutely outstanding Bible scholars and historians over the years, it is believed that the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist were both born around, according to our calendar, according to our calendars for dating history. They were probably born around 4 to 6 B.C., and we date this from Roman record and from Jewish historians, uh, from the Roman uh, uh, governors that were there at the time in office. And we're also dating this from the time of Herod the Great's death. Because obviously, if you remember the birth and narratives of Jesus, he dies during that time period. And so, at the, when John is at the height, the peak, the zenith of his ministry, the Lord Jesus leaves Nazareth for good to begin the last leg of his journey to complete his atoning mission, his uh, public ministry. Both men are approximately 30 years of age. Approximately 30 years of age. Now, that's a really young guy to us in the 21st century. But in the first century A.D., that's not quite so young. A man even 30 years of age or in his early 30s, probably by those folks, by their culture and standards, and considering the mortality rates of the time, they were probably men who were well in their prime of their adulthood. Now, we believe that John the Baptizer first stepped out upon the world stage, as we say, to begin his public ministry somewhere in the spring or early summer of A.D. 26. And he being the second Elijah, and he's keenly aware of it, he goes out to the unsettled areas, to the edges of the wilderness, and begins to preach this message of repentance and baptism, symbolizing repentance and the washing away of sins to turn back to God in order to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he doesn't stay in one place. He probably starts in the vicinity of the Dead Sea to the south, and he starts to work his way north towards Galilee. 
baptizing people in several different locations. All right? Until he reaches this place, and I'm going to give you uh, some commentary in verse 28 well ahead of time. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Now this is, please understand, this is not the Bethany that's basically a suburb of Jerusalem. The place where Lazarus and Mary and Martha, some of his best friends, live. That's just on the opposite slope of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. That Bethany is basically what we would call a suburb of the city of Jerusalem. But this Bethany is far away. This Bethany is up towards far to the north, almost into Galilee. Once again, on the edges of civilization. They probably would have pronounced it Bethania. And this place, we, we don't know exactly where it is, but I can give you a close proximity. Most historians believe that the place where John is baptizing people, the place where he baptized Jesus, the place where Jesus left to go duel with Satan in the wilderness, the place where Jesus will come back and John will say, there he is, the Lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. This probably took place, what we're reading about today, about 13 miles below the Sea of Galilee, and only about 20 miles south-southeast of Nazareth. You see, it's in very close proximity to Galilee, where some of the men who will be Jesus' disciples can come down and see John. Only 20 miles south-southeast of Nazareth. Jesus, it's easy walking distance for him to get to John. Now, we believe that the Lord Jesus left his home in Nazareth to begin his public ministry, probably... In late December of the AD of AD 26 or January of AD 27, so he comes to be baptized by John. He goes for 40 days into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. He returns from defeating Satan back to the place, this Bethany, where John is baptizing. So what you're reading about here is probably taking place in, late, according to our calendar, late February of early March of AD 27. And the text that we're looking at today probably takes place only about a day or so before Jesus returns from the wilderness after doing battle with the evil one. So I hope I put that into proper historical perspective and location for you. Verse 19, and this is the witness of John when the, Jew, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? Now, some important words about John the baptizer is his purpose and his mission. John is very important. The Lord Jesus Christ himself says this is one of the greatest men who ever lived in history and the role that he played in God's plan in redemptive history. John is a living bridge. I believe I may have mentioned this before Sunday or so past. He is a living bridge between the old world and the new. He is a living bridge between the old covenant and the new. He has one foot firmly planted as a great prophet in the Old Testament, but he is literally transitioning to the era of the arrived Messiah, the era of the inaugurated new covenant. He's a very unique man with a very unique life and ministry and a very unique time in history. He is the Messiah's personal herald. How's that for a responsibility and duty? And he, as well as the Messiah he serves, is prophesied centuries before his birth by the Old Testament prophets. He is, as aforesaid, to prepare the way, to prepare a sinful people to recognize their sin, turn away from their sin, turn back to God, and to prepare their hearts for the reception of God's Messiah. And he is to prepare these people for the Messiah's message and the Messiah's work. John made a great stir, a tremendous stir amongst the populace of Palestine at this time of fulfilling his mission. 
and the baptizer attracted some enormous attention from, all, from folks of all walks of life and all the social classes, particularly the common folk, as you can imagine, loved this man and flocked to him and flocked to his message because they knew that much of their established religious order was corrupt and is sold out to the Roman Imperium. Now, some so-called secular historians, here's another historical note for you that's very interesting. I believe including Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian from whom we receive a great deal of information of this period in, in time, but several other, let me call them secular historians. Do you know these folks recording history at the time period, some of them give much more attention regarding John the Baptist than Jesus himself? It's interesting, isn't it? That's how much of a stir John made. That's how much they consider him a messianic figure, even though the man adamantly says, I'm not the Messiah. I am a prophet. I am a prophet who is foretold, but I am not the Messiah. Don't focus on me. Focus on the one I represent, the one who's coming after me. John certainly was a striking figure, wasn't he? <laughs> he was probably very physically imposing, if not threatening. And even by their culture, pretty bizarre and controversial figure. Allow me to make this statement. All of God's true servants in this world are considered such by a fallen and corrupted world. Such it always is with God's true servants and champions in this world. They will all be considered bizarre and controversial by a corrupt world. As was John the baptizer. And we have, yes, he was a very unique man with a very unique message and a unique ministry. But yes, brothers and sisters, you and I should very much look up to this man and emulate him in many ways. His absolute undying devotion to his mission and to his message and to his purpose. Totally uncompromising and totally unapologetic. And his total devotion to his Lord, to his God, to his Messiah, the Word made flesh. So what's a few other reasons that John shook things up, upset the apple cart, as we say, in Palestine of his time. Well, John is the first great prophetic voice, the first great prophetic champion of God in Israel in over 400 years. More like about 460 years, over four centuries. From the time of the writings of Malachi, the last prophet in his arrangement in the canonical Old Testament from his time until John the baptizer comes out of the wilderness preaching his message of repentance, nobody had ever experienced or heard or witnessed a true prophetic called of God champion in over four centuries. Silence. Now to put that in perspective for you, 400 years, let's apply that to our own country. From the time that the first English settlers from England began to land on North American shores to settle, from that time to this is a little over 400 years. So when this wild man of the wilderness comes out of the wilderness, the traditional meeting place of God and his people and God and his prophets, and he is looking and sounding exactly like Elijah, things are going to happen. Things are shook up. Things are going to change. John meets all the criteria of the most radical of the Old Testament prophets. Coming from the wilderness, that very important meeting place historically, 
where God meets with His people, where God meets with His prophets. Go back and look at the Old Testament from the Exodus to the time of the prophets. Folks, when God meets with His people in the wilderness and when God meets with His men, His prophets in the wilderness, things happen. Things change. Things get shook up. History is made. John is a radical Elijah-type figure. Boy, do we need Elijahs now. New Covenant era Elijah's. And John's message was to what? Repent. Metanoia, metanoeo in the original Greek. Let me define for you this term I have before. We should do it again. Because this is the true definition of biblical repentance. Metanoeo, metanoia. You don't hear a lot of repentance going on from America's pulpits these days. It is part of the gospel. It is part of the biblical message. Here's the biblical definition of Metanoeo, metanoia. It means a genuine, complete, and total transformation. Or a complete and total change. Spiritually, it means a complete and total transformation of mind, of heart, of soul. A complete and total change of direction and transformation in a person's life. It, this word means uh, literally... In the Koine Greek, someone or something is heading in one direction and you come to a screeching halt and you make a complete and total U-turn. Or you're heading in one direction and you stop and you head in a completely and totally different direction. This means we change our direction by coming to God in genuine repentance, genuine sorrow for our sin and our rebellion against the Creator God. We receive life from Him, transforming life in his name and we head in a completely and totally different life direction and that is true transformation and that is true change that is the repentance that john is talking about that is true biblical repentance john also announced that a critical crisis time in history had come the messiah prophesied for centuries past he was at hand in fact here he says he's here he's walking around in your very midst and you people don't have a clue but you're about to find out. He's here. The Word made flesh is about to step out upon the world stage as we say. Can you imagine how this shook up the Jewish people? They're thinking, but dear God, how magnificent is that? The great son of David is going to ride in armored and on a white horse. He's going to slay Pilate and drive out the Roman legions. And we're going to become a world power again. That's what's going to happen when the Messiah arrives, right? Well, in his second advent... But there's something very important that he has to take care of first in his first advent. And he is also coming to bring salvation and judgment. Yes, judgment is part of the gospel story as well. Go back and look what is said in Luke chapter 3 verse 17. John says that the Messiah is, yes, to bring salvation to his people, but he is also to pronounce judgment when he arrives. What does he say? He speaks metaphorically. He has his threshing fork in his hand, and he will separate the wheat from the chaff, separate evil people from righteous people. The righteous people, the wheat, he will take into his barn, his kingdom. The evil people, the chaff, he will burn them up in the judgment to come. So he's actually prophesying the Messiah who will bring salvation in his first advent and the judgment in his second advent. And John called the Jewish people to repent and be baptized. They needed, as well as the pagan Gentiles, to repent and be baptized. Folks, this really shook them up. It disturbed them, I'm sure. And to the religious establishment, it probably absolutely infuriated them. 
to these Jews, most Jewish folks, certainly the religious hierarchy, they believed they had no need for any kind of baptism. They weren't pagans. They weren't Gentiles. They were the old covenant era people of God, right? What do they need to repent for? Well, we're in right with God just because of our ethnicity and our religious pedigree, right? It's only those pagan Gentiles who have to be baptized, who go through some sort of proselyte or beginning believer's baptism to, to wash away their sins and turn from their ways. We don't have to do that. You see, there was only one type of baptism at, at their time. Now, Jewish folks cleanse themselves and wash themselves in certain implements for religious ceremony, but they didn't really believe in what you and I would call a baptism thing. They didn't think they had to do that. That was only for pagans who converted to Judaism who converted to the belief in the one true God. Those folks had to go into a body of water and be immersed to symbolize the washing away of their paganism, their sins, and a turning to the one true God. The Jews didn't believe they had to do that. What is John saying? Oh, yes, you do. You are just as sinful and corrupt as the pagan Gentiles. You need to repent as well, and you need to be baptized, symbolizing the washing away of your sins and turning back to God. He's saying you're just as sinful and corrupt as any other That's going to shake things up, right? By the way, I find this interesting. People who submitted to the rite or the ceremony of proselyte baptism, this is another thing that John turned upside down and inside out. John is baptizing these people. He is physically with them in the water, and he is probably physically taking a hold of them and blessing them and lowering them in the water and raising them back up, as we do in Christian immersion baptism. They didn't do that. When proselytes were baptized, they went into the water all by themselves. There was nobody with them. And they basically lowered themselves in the water and came back up. Now, they had support. There were lots of people there. There were lots of witnesses. But they did this all by themselves in the water, not John. John is personally, physically taking hold of these people and baptizing them. He's introducing what will become Christian baptism in the era of the New Covenant. Now, another thing that shook these folks up, John is doing all of this with absolutely no official permission, no authority, or no official commission from the religious establishment. How dare he? He must be investigated. We can't have this. No, I will say that John's authority was genuine. John's authority and commission was genuine. He received his commission from God the Almighty himself. Proselyte baptism, person baptized themselves, John's changing all that. John proclaimed the arrival of Messiah, obviously. That's going to shake everything up, shake everything up for everybody. Although he adamantly denied being the Christ himself in this passage. Now, this is another thing that shook folks up, and this is why these priests and Levites are there. John is preaching against the political and religious establishment. He is preaching against their corruption. Can't have that. We have to stop that. And naturally, such a man and such a ministry would come to the attention of the religious authorities in Jerusalem. Well, really, he's the genuine article, so he should. But he should be received in a totally different way. He should be treated in a totally different way. In a totally different manner. These people were shaken in Jerusalem. John shook them up. He made them curious. He made them upset. He made them offended. He threatened them. Who is this wild man of the wilderness? Why is he doing these things? 
By what right and by what authority? You see, you see all of these. You see this by all these questions that they ask, and their attitude just leaps off the page at you, doesn't it? So, who is this investigating delegation that John sends out? When then, when the Jews, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who are who are you?" Now, I don't mean to be too slow in working through the text, but there's something else. There's another score I have to settle here. What does John mean by this expression, the Jews? Because a lot of times, from, by way of people who are ignorant of the subject matter or by the, the deliberate detractors of Christianity, they accuse John of being anti-Semitic here by speaking of the Jews in a pejorative manner. Or, by the way, this, this phrase, the Jews, does take on something of a sinister attitude, of a hostile or antagonistic attitude in the book. But what does John really mean by this? Well, sometimes when he says the Jews, and I'll point it out to you, he literally just means the Jewish people through whom the Messiah will come into the world. Sometimes it's just a literal description of a crowd of Jewish people. But a lot of times in this gospel, you will notice he says the Jews. The Jews did this. The Jews did that. The Jews here sent this delegation out to interrogate John. It's not anti-Semitic. Let me jog your memory. The man who wrote this gospel is Jewish. It's not anti-Semitic. When John says the Jews, and it is a negative context, it's a shorthand expression, folks. It's his shorthand expression way of saying the corrupt Jewish religious leadership in Jerusalem who deliberately pit themselves against the Messiah as his enemy. That's what he means by this expression, the Jews. And that's what he means by this expression here. So, the priests were to do the actual questioning. The Levites, as you may or may know, who, who were the attendants to help the priests and all the duties in the temple complex, they were to come out to probably do crowd control and to insist, assist the priests in any other way. And he confessed. This is John the baptizer. He confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. So first and foremost, the message here, John the baptizer, in spite of everything that everybody's saying about him, he himself is not the Messiah. He is not the word made flesh. He has the light shining in him and through him. He serves the light, but he is not God's ultimate light of truth to humanity. He served and prepared the way for he who is the light. Now notice this. Let's be honest. It's okay. It's perfectly okay. Look at the English translation in this verse, or of this verse in almost any English translation. Frankly, it's awkward. That's because it's that way in the original Greek, and there's a reason for that. Wake up. This is important. I know those folks out there are awake. Notice the odd, even awkward word construction or arrangement in this verse from the Greek. There's a reason for that. Now, why does John do that? He's doing it for this reason. John, the author, is using the strongest word arrangement possible in first century Greek to tell us just how honest and just how open and just how forthright John the baptizer is answering these questions. He is telling the truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And John is emphatic that he is not the Christ. This answer by the baptizer, written this way by John the author, should take away any and all ambiguity as to John's identity as opposed to the Messiah's identity. And remember I told you before, there was something of a false messianic or 
personality cult being built up around John. And he would have virulently opposed that. Verse 21. Well, they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? I love his answers. And he says, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. <laughs> now, you should never be flippant or cavalier or disrespectful about anything in Scripture. But honestly, this little interrogation, you really are tempted to smile somewhat, aren't you? And shake your head. And John, John was deadly serious in his purpose and his mission. But John probably was gifted with a sense of humor, like all the rest of us. And John knew exactly the types he was dealing with. First and foremost, not the Messiah. Right? Then in verse 21, right? What then? The frustration's leaping off the page 2,000 years later, right? What then? Well, who are you? What are you all about? Are you Elijah? Now, this is important, this question. Are you Elijah? By asking him, are you Elijah, do you recognize what they're doing? They're misinterpreting their Bible. They are... They're, forgive me, I'm excited about the teaching material, so I'm getting ahead of myself. Pardon me. They are erroneously interpreting Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Isaiah 40 prophesies John. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 prophesies the Messiah's herald. And they're misinterpreting it. It is prophesied that what? Elijah will come back. A second Elijah will come back. Well, these people were thinking that Elijah himself personally was literally going to come back from the dead. Well, that's not what the prophecy really means. There is a second Elijah. But what the prophecy means is that someone will be a prophetic figure very much like Elijah or very much resembling Elijah. That's who the Messiah's herald will be, not Elijah himself, literally back from the dead. And so John answers, no, I'm not. I am his herald. I was prophesied in that verse, but you got it all wrong. I am a second Elijah, but I'm not Elijah himself back from the dead. Right? Next, are you the prophet? Now, what in the world does he mean by that? You've got to know your Old Testament well. They are referring to a prophecy of Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this prophecy is located in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. Moses is prophesying the Messiah. Moses prophesies in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, a great prophet in the distant future will come, a far greater prophet than me. Look for him, Israel, and receive him when he arrives. Well, these folks erroneously interpreted that a great prophet greater than Moses would arise, but this great prophet would come before the Messiah, or we don't know when he will really come or what's going on. Well, Moses is prophesying the Messiah himself in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This prophet was not Messiah's forerunner, but the Messiah himself. And so John just honestly answers, no, you got that one wrong too. It's about time you folks started accurately interpreting the scriptures, right? Verse 22. <laughs> then they said to him, who are you? so that we may give answer to those who sent, sent us. What do you say about yourself? So here we see the obvious growing frustration of those sent out to question John. Their patience is running out. 
They want, they need a definitive answer concerning this man and his mission to give back to the powers that be in Jerusalem. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, wonderful answer. He said, this is literally ancient prophecy fulfilling itself right in front of their eyes, right in front of their ears, like Jesus in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Very interesting answer now, isn't it? John answers them by quoting the prophet Isaiah. And what he says is an absolutely, utterly truthful, accurate, honest answer. But he does so, not in his own words, but by Isaiah's words. It's a beautiful thing. You see what he's doing there? He answers by quoting the prophecy concerning himself. He is obviously keenly aware and probably was from his childhood. He is keenly aware that Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 is a prophecy concerning he himself. And so he quotes it. His ministry is the herald, the forerunner of the Messiah, preparing the Messiah's way. It's an amazing thing that's happening here. And by John answering this way, John is doing two things. You've got to study this close. You've got to put some thought into this. He's actually doing two things in this answer by quoting Isaiah. The first thing is he's telling the honest and varnished truth as to who his identity is. I am the prophesied herald of the Messiah. I am that one, according to Isaiah, who is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord into your heart, your soul, your mind. Get every obstruction out of the way from the Lord entering your life in your heart. But also, what is he saying? By quoting Isaiah, repent. Get ready. Make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Yes, you, you folks who are asking me right now. Yes, you, you as well. You repent. You get ready for his arrival. You see what he's doing? He's calling them on them to repent by quoting Isaiah. And this delegation must take this answer back to Jerusalem. They have to take it back to the religious establishment. They have to take it back to the Sanhedrin, the religious powers that be. So again, what's John's message to them? It's Isaiah's message. It's his message. Make straight the way of the Lord. Get ready. Repent. Prepare to receive the Messiah, the Word made flesh. Every member of this delegation and every member of the Sanhedrin who hears this message will be called upon to repent. To make the road straight for the entrance of the Lord, the Messiah, who is Lord. You see what the imagery here is of Isaiah and John? It's the image of a king who is about to visit his people, visit the capital of his kingdom, visit important provinces in his kingdom. Isn't that what this is? The king of kings and the Lord of lords entering what John called his own property, his own territory, his own home, where his own received him not. Just, and also, just as in Isaiah's prophecy, the Lord promises to visit his people with unbelievable new blessings of his grace that he will extend to those who are always being pictured as people in slavery, people in captivity, people in slavery to themselves and to the world and to the evil one. So surely, when a king is about to visit his people, the road has to be prepared, right? So that he may enter in state, in pomp and circumstance, so that he can enter without any difficulties or obstructions, so that he will be received properly by his people. And so also John the Baptist says, the Jewish Old Covenant people, it's your job to do this. 
You're not off the hook by your religious or ethnic pedigree. And yes, you, the religious establishment, you should be ahead of everybody else in repenting and making the road straight for the Lord and the Lord's Messiah. The way, the way that leads into your heart, into your very soul, genuine sorrow for sin, a genuine prayer for mercy and God's pardon are absolute necessities here. And both are the product of God's grace. He enables us to do these things by the work of His Holy Spirit. John the baptizer is saying, I have an important job. I was commissioned by God. It was prophesied from long ago. I'll grant that, but I'm only a voice. I am not the Messiah. I'm the Messiah's herald. In the end, I am only a voice. And let everybody realize that the command to repent is really issued by the one who is coming, who my voice represents. And so they're told to make straight the way of the Lord. And by the way, folks, so are we. When John the baptizer in the Gospel of John says, Repent, turn to God, turn away from your sin, prepare the way of the Lord into your heart, he is saying that not only to folks 2,000 years ago, he is saying it to you and I right now. He still speaks by way of this Gospel. This message of repentance is for absolutely anyone and everyone who ever reads this Gospel and whoever hears this Gospel. Let me read verses 24 and 25 to move through them a little more quickly so as I don't break up John's thought. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, if you are not Elijah, nor the prophet? Who do you think you are? Interesting. So we find that some members of this delegation were of the religious sect known as the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees did not have the authority on their own as a group to send these people out. This is kind of difficult to translate in the Greek. But the Sanhedrin, who did have the authority to send this delegation out, many men who were members of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees. So probably what uh, a lot of Greek scholars believe, that verse 24 simply means that some of the men in this delegation, they were Pharisees. And at this point in the conversation, they step forward. They step up to the plate to ask John the baptizer some questions all of their own. And more upon these, more information I'll give you upon these religious orders, Sadducees and Pharisees, as we work our way through the gospel, because there will be some information and background on these religious groups that will be necessary. So 25 again. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now there might be some legitimacy there. Well, if you're not any one of these great figures that we're expecting, then what gives? What is going on here? If you are not one of these great expected figures, by the way, some of these figures the Jews believe were going to pop up in the end times. Then why are you doing this? And all right, the religious elite want to know, who gave you the right and authority to do all this? Who authorized you to do all this? You see, this baptism of repentance is really, really getting under their skin. It's rattling them. Their hold on everybody and everything is being threatened, is being challenged here. Oh, this stuff is for pagans. It's not for us. John's answer, beautiful, 26 and 27. John answered them saying, I baptize in water. That's important. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
Magnificent answer. It's totally accurate, truthful, and honest, as we would expect. And it is also extraordinarily humble. And it is genuine humility. And there's one of the life applications for us, folks. We are to emulate the humility of John the Baptist in the presence of he before he who is the word made flesh. And you will or should exercise true humility before him when you really know who he is and what he has come to do. And remember, John, well, to jog your memory as if you needed it, John the Baptist is being questioned by some very proud, very self-important, very self-righteous people here. And it is amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how much more true spiritual insight the baptizer has than these elite members of the religious establishment of their day. That is an incredible irony. Why? Why is there that difference? God's true truth truly resides in this man, the Baptist. God's true truth lives in this man and is upon him. That also in part explains his genuine humility. And more importantly, the Holy Spirit of the living God resides in this man. This man was filled with the spirit of the living God before he was ever born. That explains his humility. When you are filled with the spirit of God, you will have humility before God. When you really know who God is, you will be humble before God. Now, first of all, by saying I baptize with water, let me make a longer story a little shorter for you. It's kind of an odd thing to say, I baptize in water. Why does he focus on that? Why, why that distinction here? He's making a contrast between what he does and what the Messiah will do. That's the reason. Okay. I baptize with water. So John is saying there's, there's a very important difference. There's a vast difference in what he does and what he's doing and what the Messiah will do when he arrives. And he's here. John delivers the message to repent. John administers the physical sign of repentance, which is water baptism, to prepare for the Messiah. But he's saying, when the Messiah comes, this is what I do. And as important as it is, when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah arrives, his work will be far, far, far greater than mine. That's what he's saying. And by the way, notice closely in the text, what does he say? He says, the Messiah has arrived. Among you stands, present tense. Among you stands one who you do not know. He is here and he is about to be revealed. So the Messiah, John is saying, he and he alone, he can truly give you, he can truly bestow the thing that I signify and symbolize in baptism. Do you see? Baptism symbolizes the forgiveness of sin. Baptism symbolizes true cleansing from sin. Baptism symbolizes the cleansing and life-giving power of God's Spirit. But John is saying when the Messiah arrives, He truly will give you forgiveness of sin. He truly will accomplish the true cleansing of sin from your life. He truly can give you the life-giving power of God's Spirit. So again, John is saying my role is genuine. It's called by God. It's important. But I can only call for I can only symbolize, I can only commemorate what the Messiah can truly give you and what the Messiah really will accomplish. And what does he say? He's here. He is standing right in your very midst. He's moving about and walking about amongst you and you don't have a clue. You don't know who he is. 
That's how urgently you need to prepare the way of the Lord. He is here. He is the Word made flesh who pitched His tent and dwelt amongst us. He's here. And everything is going to change for everybody. See the incredible irony here? These are the religious elites of their day who are making up this delegation. And in their self-important zeal to want to go out there to the edges of the wilderness and confront this guy who's not one of them and to expose him as a false messiah, they're so zealous for that that they are totally ignorant of the actual true messiah who has actually arrived. One of the most incredible ironies in history. The messiah... According to the humble, truly humble John the Baptist, notice here, this is one of the most important lessons, and this is applicable to us. Please get this at the end of this text. This is one of the most important lessons from this text. John the Baptist's humility before Jesus, because he knows who Jesus really is. According to truly humble John the Baptist, the Messiah is so great, the Messiah is so glorious, the Messiah is so magnificent, that this wonderful man of God, John the Baptizer, considers himself of absolutely no account in comparison. Why is that? Because the Messiah is the Word made flesh. God the Almighty, the Son, the one who was in the beginning, the one who was in the beginning with God and who was and is and ever shall be God. That's why. The one who existed before John and who existed before everyone and everything else. John says the Messiah is so great, so wonderful, that he, extraordinary man of God that he is, he is not worthy to perform the most humble and menial service for the Messiah. He is not worthy to perform the task and duty of a slave in the first century A.D. The Messiah's sandal I am not worthy to untie. That's how great he is. Now, I don't mean to try your patience, but I'm going to going through this book. Okay. What, 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 what about this phrase here? I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. There's a little bit more than, uh, to that than you may know. There's a little more to that than you may know. Let me explain in closing. As you can imagine, I believe I may have mentioned it before on Sunday mornings or Bible studies, there was a very particular, at times even rigid, code of conduct amongst cultural and communal and, let's say, religious life in Israel in antiquity, in ancient times. And there was an expected code of behavior between the populace and a rabbi, between the population, students, and rabbis, teachers, or specifically between the students of the rabbi and the rabbi. There was a code of behavior for the relationship between students and the rabbis. And we find this in writing. It's codified at about 250 A.D., but we believe that this was practiced centuries earlier. In fact, we almost know for certain because of exactly what John the Baptist says here. John the Baptist knows this code. He's quoting it. He's paraphrasing it. That's how we know. You see, rabbis uh, many times simply refuse to be paid for their work of teaching. Um, and some rabbis, including Jesus, were itinerant. That means they traveled. They were always on the go, on the move. And many people that they taught were, were poor folks of the lower classes 
who frankly, if they wanted to pay them, they couldn't because they were cash poor. They didn't have a lot of hard rainy money on hand. But the rabbi had to make a living. He had to be supported. So folks supported him in any way that they could if he couldn't be paid. You would help with his clothing. You would help with his food. You would take him into your home and, and give him shelter. And people would perform daily chore tasks for him so he could what? So that 24-7 he could be studying the Word of God. And he could be teaching the Word of God to people because the rabbi was expected 24-7 to be available to teach the Word of God to people. Incidentally, I believe that bleeds over into the New Covenant era as well. Your teaching elder in your church should be expected 24-7 to teach from the Word of God. And he should be expected to be studying the Word of God all the time. Okay, so sometimes the, these folks, the community, the populace, had to take care... Had to take care of the rabbi to help make a living for him so that he could be teaching everybody all the time and studying all the time. And one of, uh, of course, as you can imagine, the people who in particular were expected to do this were the students. When the students were actually soaking in his teaching, well, one or more were supposed to be out doing all the tasks to help the rabbi get by. Let me quote this code for you. A student is expected to do absolutely everything for his rabbi that a slave does for his master except to untie the sandal strap. A student was expected to perform every task for the rabbi that a slave does their master except that. Except untying the sandal strap. Now, everybody in antiquity in the Mediterranean world would have known what that meant. It means this. That was the duty of a slave in the household to undo the sandal strap. Remember, first century A.D., everybody's in some sandal type of footgear. Whether you're riding a donkey or a horse or you're walking, in the first century A.D., your feet are going to get hot and smelly and dirty and cut and bruised. And when you come into the house or a house of means, it was the duty of the slave to meet the person at the door, to undo the sandal strap, remove the sandals, and bathe and wash and doctor up those dirty, cut, bruised feet. That is the duty of a slave. And that is precisely what John mentions here. You're supposed to do everything for your rabbi, but that, not the duty of a slave. But that duty of a slave, I'm not worthy to do that for the Messiah. That is how wonderful and great and magnificent he really is. What's the lesson there? It should be obvious. This is the same humble awe and reverence that we are all to have concerning he who is the word made flesh. That's what this text is saying to us. Prepare the way into your very heart and your very soul for the Messiah, who is the Word made flesh. And you are to have the exact same humility and reverence and awe that John has for him. None of us, as wonderful as we think we are, none of us are worthy to untie the sandal strap of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Just by virtue of who he is. And yes, by virtue of what he came to do. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, 
I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit, the ultimate author of these words, to these folks here gathered and to any who will watch and listen today and in the days ahead, to absorb this truth into their life, to appropriate this truth for their life. Send your Holy Spirit upon them to open their eyes and ears, the eyes and ears of their soul, to receive this truth, to be able to believe and to have life in the name of he who is the Word made flesh, the great John the Baptizer's master. Let us all practice true humility in all before him, for in knowing him, we will have true and lasting life. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.